Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V, and today I'm super excited to welcome two guests to the podcast. First of all, Trudy Truen, CBCA Notable Book recipient for Wibbly Wobbly Street. And today we're going to chat about Grandma's Prickly Secret, illustrated by Nellie Sonelli. Welcome, Trudy. Hi, thank you for having me. Today I also welcome Michael Dumbleton, an author with nine notable book awards from the CBCA of Australia. Other awards include Speech Pathology Australia Book of the Year for Muddled Up Farm and CBCA Honour Book Cat. Very impressive. Today we're going to chat about Mary Had a Monstersaurus, illustrated by Peter Bath. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Danny. Very, very, very good to be here. It's great. Very impressive bio, both of you, all those CBCA uh, notables and awards and honours. It, it just says you've been around for a long time. <laughs> yeah. No no need to be humble here, Michael, none at all. <laughs> first, first of all, we might start with an elevator pitch because we're looking at two picture books today, which are, you know, very funny and very entertaining. I enjoyed reading them both, but they're very different. Trudy, can you give us an elevator pitch of your picture book, please? Okay. Um, well, I guess, what would you do if you found your grandma in the bathroom doing something very silly? Um, very silly, like maybe plucking out her chin hairs. <laughs> well, as every kid knows, there's hundreds of uses for chin hairs. They can be very handy. Um, read on to find out how. You know what? This Short is, and sweet. <laughs> yeah, well, this is great. It's very on brand for Larrikin House, I think. You know, they have these quirky little stories. But how did you come up with this story? I mean, it's it's a wild story. Well, obviously not from me having chin hairs. Heaven forbid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm not even quite sure how 
the first spark of that story came about. Maybe it was from me pulling out a tin hair, possibly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it just it dawned on me that it would that kids would find it amusing to have uses for them, and that you could do all sorts of weird things like tie your um, glasses to them, tie your hat onto your head, walk the dogs. <laughs> yeah, it just the illustrations really um, won me over. I, I saw a lot of a lot of room for funny illustrations. Absolutely. And when you're saying it, I mean, it's very practical, but I like how they escalate, you know, that goes from the glasses to walking the dog, etc. So I like yeah, how those are catching fish. Yeah, <laughs> catching fish. But it really encapsulates, you know, childhood because children have such wild ideas about the world and it's nice to be reminded of the joy of childhood and those wild ideas that they often have. Yeah. And they have a real appreciation for the ridiculousness. As do I, really. <laughs> yeah. And you must as well. <laughs> I do. <laughs> now, Michael, your book, can you give us an elevator pitch for Mary Had a Monstersaurus? Yeah, that's right. It's, um, well, obviously it's a parody of Mary Had a Little Lamb, and that's so tame, but it's just universal. It's known everywhere. And I, I don't know, at some stage the idea came into my head that Mary had a dinosaur, I went through a few others. The dinosaur seemed to stick. I've been a teacher for a lifetime. Um, and the lamb went to school. I just thought it'd be more interesting if the dinosaur went to school. Uh, I could see all sorts of opportunities for mayhem there. And, uh, and that's what it was, really. So it was just some of those opening lines. And the name of the dinosaur was Monstersaurus Rex. And so the title became Mary Had a Monstersaur. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's I just one it. of those ideas that bobs up and you sort of think, where did it come from? It's one of those ideas that came up, then you had to work it through. Yes. I mean, yes. sometimes you come up with an ending and you sort of work it back and there, are, there seem to be a lot of different ways to get ideas. So. Mm. And look, I think Mary Had a Lamb is, is you know, due for an update because I think, you know, Monstersaurus is the next step from a lamb. What do you think? That's right. Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly a big update. It's... Uh, <laughs> The, the most difficult for me was the the absurdity of how the dinosaur appears, mm -hmm. and it ended up with a there was a line there. She found him in a long lost hole behind the garden shed, which which sort of seems entirely plausible apart from the fact that it's not. <laughs> um, it sort of got me over that. And once you've got the dinosaur surfacing in the modern day, the the rest of it was pretty straightforward. Going to school is very straightforward, you know. Mm. And the kids love it. <laughs> it's funny because I like how you said, oh, we have to make, you know, the dinosaur come from somewhere and make it plausible in a completely implausible story. We have to try and make this plausible. I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, there's just, just some kind of internal logic that I sort of feel as though I need to work with to a degree. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's absurdity that goes too far sometimes for me. <laughs> and uh, so getting that within bands, but it's, it, it worked out really well. There was, there was a bit of work on the ending to change that around. There were some alternatives that were possible and so on. But uh, in the in the end, we got there. Yeah, absolutely. I find that very interesting too when, you know, you feel like you had this absurd idea and you almost have to pull it back. But I think it's easier, and correct me if I'm wrong, to just go full absurd and then pull it back. Do you find that that's the easier process? Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I, I learned that very early on. One of the first books I did was um, called Dialacroc, 
and it was about a young girl who went out into the outback beyond the back of beyond and captured a crocodile. And uh, I sent her out there all tooled up like Rambo, basically, in the first version. <laughs> and thinking, you, you can't do this, you can't do this. And, uh, and then we gradually brought it back to a pen knife and a net and it was, you know, acceptable within the realm mm-hmm. of picture books. Just push it out there and see what happens. Yeah, and I think I quite like the feedback of pull it back rather than, oh, this is boring, you need more. So I'd much rather the feedback of, yeah. like, bring it in, rein it in a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say that Larrikin is very good with that because right from the outset, James is clear that he's, he's, he's absolutely keen to sort of push things out and so on in, in the final product as much as the early drafts. Yeah. And, uh, and that's good because I, I think it's that area where I know that I've got some books out which parents, grandparents buy for kids and there are some kids which kids would, some books which kids would pick up themselves off the shelf. Yeah. They just appeal to kids straight away. So mm-hmm. there's, there's that slight division in mm. the picture book world. Yeah, absolutely. And when Larry can tell you you've gone too far, you know you must have gone too yeah. far. <laughs> you, you might as well leave Australia, I think. <laughs> Has Larry can never told anyone they've gone too far? Judy, tell me about your process. Do you find the same process of, you know, pushing the boundaries as far or do you work in an opposite way? Oh, wow. It can be different with each book. I mean, Sometimes an idea will come to you almost fully formed with a plot line and everything. Other times, I mean, with Wibbly Wobbly Street, all I had to go on was just the words Wibbly Wobbly Street. That's where I, I liked the sound of that. And then I had to, to flesh out a story from that. So I would, uh, like, just throw things out, try that, try another one until I sort of found a plot line that I was happy with. Um, sometimes it's you know, something that somebody says and it will, will trigger a, a thought. Some some ideas just seem to come together and others need to be worked at, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I've, I find if I'm doing, particularly with picture books, it's always um, pen and paper to start off with. There's, there's some sort of a link there, I think, between the mind and the hand. Yes. And it's easier to just get the bones of a story down on pen and paper. You can scrunch it up and toss it away easier if it's if it's awful it feels like you're starting fresh rather than delete 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 that doesn't mm. seem fresh somehow um and the scribbles everywhere with arrows to here and there cross that out put that back in yeah so I'll, I'll tend to do the basic outline and probably the first draft so yeah the bare bones and then draft it a little bit on paper and then flesh it out a bit more on the on the computer and then pair it back to prettier bones, I guess. <laughs> I love that. I love the idea of pen and paper and I have that too. I love my full scat paper yeah. and my special pen and you just, you know, write, scribble everywhere, make a giant mess and then I won't even, yeah. I won't even touch it and put it on the computer until it's just about ready to go because I just love that mess beforehand. How do you do it, Michael? Do you <laughs> pen and paper, man, or straighten the laptop? Yeah, it used to be that. Now it's changed amazing i had a spell in um doing some literacy work in in new york and found that with, with the amount of work that i was doing if i thought of anything i had to be able to deal with it straight away mm-hmm. and i wasn't necessarily able to do it on pen and paper and so all of a sudden i'm making phone notes and memos and doing doing all sorts of things you know yeah. it'll get added to the shopping list if that happens to be on the screen and just <laughs> ideas and words well you know that 
things percolate as you're going along. You think you've forgotten about it and you're on yeah. the rest of your day. And then something just comes into your mind. You think, where did that come from? I need to write it down because I will yeah. forget it. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, you know, so it's so, so I, I, I use that every method under the sun. Mm. And then you come home and you've got to put it all together and you've got some in your notes and you've texted yourself and emailed yourself. You've got a scribble yeah. on your hand, a bit That's of a right. paper in your pocket. And you're like, oh, where do I start? <laughs> yeah, we, we tidy it all up and put it on. I mean, the other problem I've got is that my handwriting is like doctor's <laughs> stereotypical handwriting. So if I leave it for too long, there's a chance I can't read it. Mm. Um, so tidying it up on the computer. In fact, a long, long time ago, the decision when I decided I could um, have a stab at the writing and stuff, because I, I'd always wanted to write, but then we ended up with three kids under three. We, uh, we had one plan for another one and had twins. And that's oh, wow. That decimated us for a while. So I didn't bother, <laughs> didn't bother even trying for about 14 years. And then, um, and then I decided as well that I would need to be able to see this stuff clearly. So I had a chat with my wife about could could we um, could we put an Apple II C? Do you remember that? That'll you probably don't. I no, don't. That I'm goes sorry. Back a long way. <laughs> you buy an Apple II C, and they were very expensive at that. So it was the first stage of computers, and uh, we did that. Couldn't afford it, and definitely couldn't afford the printer. But we got that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and and then at least when I tidied my work up, I could read it. I wasn't stuck with my own handwriting. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I love these different processes and the processes that change over time as well. So that's really interesting too. Now, what yeah. I'm interested in with picture books is I actually find the challenge writing really succinct stories where you have to say so much, you have to follow a story arc, but you have to do it in under 500 words. And sometimes that's tricky because you then not only have to be funny or entertaining or engaging the kids, you've got to follow a kind of story arc with a conclusion and a climax and an introduction of characters with very, very few words. Trudy, tell us about your challenges in doing this or does, just, does it come really easy to you? <laughs> yeah, sure. It just falls out. <laughs> um, no, like I said, I'll, I'll start with the bones of a story um, and then I'll just let myself write heaps. So I'll, I'll put way, way, way more details and events and everything in that I think I need, let it sit for a bit, then come back, find the ones that I like, find the crux of the story, I guess, and then just begin pairing it back, which is actually a process that I really love, getting rid of words. I, I just love to, to play with a paragraph, move it around, chop things out until it is quite succinct and bare but still can get the emotion across. Mm. So, yeah, it's challenging but I do like that, to sort of start with bones, flesh it out and then pair it back to nicer bones. <laughs> I like that. I like that. What about you, Michael? <laughs> I, I think it's challenging when, when it's a rhyming text. Mm. You can go back to yes. that a lot of times mm -hmm. and then occasionally there are rhymes which I tolerate, but deep down I know there's <laughs> something that's problematic there. Would uh, we call that a rhyme crime, Michael? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, we have a few of those and you can go back to them, but it may mean unstitching stanzas before and after mm -hmm. to actually put it right. You can't put it right in the stanza. I think some of the... I think I sort of improved my ability to be succinct about things because I've always taught in socially disadvantaged and quite challenging schools. Mm -hmm. And if you've got your grade nines on a Friday afternoon, 
and you're blathering on and you're just boring, they'll, they'll rip you to bits. So That's true. You, you've actually got to know how to get your audience very quickly and distill it in a way that is going to interest the, the kids. So I, mm. I think that helps. But that's not an answer to writing a picture book. In the end, there are little finesses. And um, my wife is a particularly good and formidable um, reader. And uh, our marriage is still intact after many years and many manuscripts where she's found faults in them. Um, and, the, and that helps to have someone who just doesn't give you that sort of, oh, well, this is okay. Yeah, that's good. I like it. They, they, they give you direct feedback on you know stuff that's not working yeah yeah which is so important but going back we'll talk about feedback in a minute because I love talking about feedback because different people take feedback in different ways so I love that that conversation but just to circle back a little bit to rhyme or prose or to rhyme or not to rhyme I often find that humor is found in rhyme and Mm. it's much easier to get the, the the laughter through rhyme but then Michael you were saying it kind of it, it makes it difficult for you. Tell me about your relationship with rhyme and prose. For me, for yeah. um, well, it's. I remember having a couple of books on the go and getting some feedback from someone, and the feedback was, "Oh, I really like your sort of prosaic style more than the rhyming. I sort of avoid rhyming." Mm-hmm. And then another one came back and said, "I really like your rhyming style. I don't like your <laughs> prose so much." So I thought I'm going to have to do a bit of both here. And you hear a lot from people who say, don't write in rhyme. There, there are those messages come across. And partly that's because there are difficulties in translating it. So if okay. people want to sell their stuff internationally, mm-hmm. and things like that, it's, it's problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm just drawn to doing the rhyme. But I say to myself every so often, I need to do one that doesn't rhyme. So I yeah. don't get locked into just, just doing the, the rhyming books. And certain texts and certain stories just lend themselves to different kinds yes. of images. Yeah, but I agree. I agree with you. Rhyme allows you to create something. It, it, it's almost like an intermediary between words and pictures. Mm. There's something in the rhyme which is just funny in its own right. It is, right? It, it is. That lights up on the page. Yeah. And it's not the picture. And it's not the same as prose. And it's something that's exclusive to rhyming. Mm text i agree I, I agree with you i think i find it much easier to write something that's funny if it rhymes i don't know why what about you trudy what's your relationship with rhyme and prose um yeah well it, it depends usually i think i write prose but some stories come to you in rhyme some just seem to lend themselves to rhyme and like i said funny rhyme lends itself to funny it does. Um, there's always a scope there for weird pairings of words for made-up words. So you've got a little bit of extra scope there to bring humour. And I think there's also a little bit of um, kids can sometimes foretell because of the rhyme. So, And you can also surprise them because of that because they can be expecting one thing and you can throw something else completely. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, but rhyme is fun. It's fun to say, um, yeah, it's fun for kids to read Definitely. Yeah, I like rhyme. My kids are still very little, so I still read them books. And, you know, I like the rhyme. I like both, but it's fun to rhyme. You know, it's fun to read aloud and trying to guess the next word, especially when the rhyme then hangs over the next page, you know. So that's always fun when you're reading with kids. Now let's get on to feedback. It's a tricky tricky thing because we all know that we need it, but we all have an ego as well. (laughs) And so... (laughs) 
how do you, because I, I always think in my head, okay, it's about the work, it's about the work, it's about the work, but sometimes it, it can be quite confronting because you think, oh, maybe I can't write <laughs> if there's all this feedback on it. <laughs> I should just do something else. So, Michael, you start first. How do you deal? I mean, you're talking a little bit about your wife's very generous feedback to you, but how do you how do you prepare yourself and take on feedback? Are you the one who, you know, needs a, needs a bit of a separation when you get the, the feedback and go for a walk and get over it, or are you just like, let's let's do this? Yeah, no, I don't I don't mind too much. I, but I think it's something I sort of ease my way into <laughs> because I think feedback is the first thing you get when you attempt to be a writer. And usually it's negative feedback <laughs> or, or you want no feedback. You just get that massive silence from public yeah, it's where, worse, isn't it? Um, they used to reply more regularly when I started. Um, so you would get a response. No, we don't want this. And a standard letter at least. So you knew what was happening. Mm. And now it varies. As, as you get to know publishers, obviously they reply to you. But uh, but it, it's, it's not the case with everyone. And then I used to break it down into no response. I got a response. And then I had what I call good rejections, uh, where there was a response, but there was a scribbled handwritten note, I'd like to see more, oh. or this was interesting. Or So I got a, a couple of those. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, well, okay, we're, we're getting a bit closer here. And then then finally something got picked up. But but you then, then, then the myth is that if you've had one book published, it's straightforward then. The next one get published but no the rejections keep coming in one way or another and i think part of it is it's not a rejection of this manuscript it's certainly not a rejection of you it's not a rejection even of this manuscript because i heard james talking the other day about his response to manuscripts at larrikin and one of the first people that i worked with was jane coventon who did omnibus mm -hmm. and all that stuff and did all the changes with Mem's Possum Magic and stuff like that. And I said to her once, because she'd come up with good ideas on books that we were doing, I said, well, well why don't you write? Have you ever thought about doing more? I said, oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. Couldn't do that, I can do the editing. And then we started to talk about the editing and what she liked. She said, well, the problem with picture books is they have to be good. The manuscripts, if they're sent in, have to be good. She said, but after that, I have to like it. Mm -hmm. I personally have to like it. And I think that's the same with editors. So there's an element where you can send it to someone and it just doesn't connect with them, but it may connect with someone else. Mm. I think um, that's true for publishers too. You know, they all have their sort of brand that they, you know, adhere to. So I guess that, that makes a difference too of who you're sending the work to. Yeah, and if you're doing submissions regularly, keep an eye on whether editors are changing in companies. Yes. <laughs> it can be a, a, new, a fresh opening. Yes, absolutely. Trudy, <laughs> tell me about feedback. Are you a, a gung-ho, let's do this, let's tear it apart, or are you a let's go for a walk around the block and be kind to me kind of feedback person? <laughs> um, I guess my feedback has probably changed a lot over the years. When I first started out, I used to get a lot of feedback from writers and and things like that. Um, now, I probably don't look quite so much for for the feedback from writers. I, I still will always run through run things through my kids now that they're um, adults. Um, my mum, she's always good to make me feel good. Right. <laughs> the kids will bring me down. Mum will bring me back up. Yeah, <laughs> um, and my agent, uh, and and a few trusted friends for for some feedback. Um, but it, it yeah. It, it is very 
subjective too with picture mm. books. I mean, I remember I've lost my kisses. I accidentally sub submitted that to Scholastic twice. Um, and I hadn't realised, because my bad bookkeeping, I hadn't realised I'd already submitted it there and got rejected. Did they reject so it twice? No, the, the second time they took it. It was a different oh, editor. So, I love this. You know, a different this. editor sees oh, something. Yeah. It was only, yeah, so it only got published because of my poor record keeping. <laughs> the best story. And, <laughs> well, with, um, with Grandma's Prickly Secret, my agent actually said that it, it was appalling. Um, so I was yeah. like, oh, okay. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for your feedback. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, thank you for your feedback. I'm going to go for a walk around the block. Um, <laughs> and here we and, are, a published book. <laughs> another editor friend said that she showed it to her publisher and they couldn't decide whether it was dreadful or hilarious. So it can be just a take. When I saw James's call for, for books that bordered on the, the wrong side of funny, I thought, well, this seems like a bit of a match. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's true. Each, each editor is looking for something else. Each yeah. editor will gel with with us with different stories so <laughs> the wrong <laughs> side of funny that's my favorite quote for tonight the wrong side of funny <laughs> picture books on the wrong side of funny that's my favorite that's my favorite funny the wrong shaping, side <laughs> shaping the future yeah I think you know I think we all might share a bit of that kind of humor Liz, what would we be doing here <laughs> <laughs> now Michael I'm going to ask you why picture books and why do you want to write for children um well, after the uh, after having the three children under three, which uh, I mentioned before, I thought eventually, well, I need to get started. And I, I made that mistake of thinking, well, I'll do something that's shorter. And so I'll do the picture books. I knew nothing about them. I sent them away at 27 pages for wherever it finished was where I sent it away. <laughs> so, I, so I learned a lot very quickly. And in point of fact, the first book that I had published was an educational book. I've done some books on literacy and stuff like that. I also did a young adolescent novel at one stage, but I realized that was therapeutic, um, having taught for 17 years in a particularly difficult school and as a disciplined deputy and things like that, recorded incidents that were just crazy. Um, but uh, gradually over time, I, th I think I've, I've enjoyed the picture books because of the collaborative process. Mm. You're, you're sort of not on your own, you, you do this. I can't draw, I can't draw stick figures that stand up straight, it's just terrible. So, um, so handing it over to someone who then adds another whole dimension to it and perhaps a visual narrative or things in the visuals that create a narrative and so on. Um, that's, that's a fantastic process, mm. uh, it's really good. Um, and sometimes it's straightforward, sometimes it's difficult to get it there, but you, you've always got people who work with you, editors and things like that, to sort of work you through that process. Yeah. So it's really enjoyable. And the other great thing is um, you get to go into schools and you use the books with the kids and you just see their faces and get their responses. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's fabulous. So I've enjoyed it. Uh, and luckily, it's an area of the market that's held up with the advent of e-books and mm. digital stuff and things like that. So mm. it's, it's win, 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 I think. And kids are never shy about telling you exactly what they think. So if they like it, you know that they actually really like it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> They're not afraid to tell you if they no, don't. No, no, they'll, uh, <laughs> they'll give it to you straight. They will. I yeah. often read, you know, my drafts to my kids and my eight-year-old will be like, that's trash. And I'm like, thank you for your feedback. 
I'll start again. <laughs> That's right. There's no food tonight. <laughs> That's right. Make your own dinner. <laughs> Trudy, tell me why picture books and why do you write for kids? Um, why picture books, I guess, part of it is a time thing. I, I have written a couple of um, short fiction as well, but that's a lot of bum-on-the-seat typing time, whereas with picture books, it's a lot of it just happens up here in the head. So I can I can be working on a, on a paragraph while I'm doing the ironing, while I'm cooking dinner, while I'm writing to work. Um, so I can be tossing around words and sentences paragraph by paragraph so I, I can actually multitask a little bit more while I'm while I'm writing picture books I guess whereas you know with a with a fiction book long you know a long fiction you're just sitting in the seat for a lot of time typing and I don't really have time for that at the moment <laughs> and why kids because their imaginations are just so much more willing to imagine I know I have a um when I go into schools, sometimes I have a yoga mat which I roll out on the floor. When kids ask me, "How do I know if my ideas are any good?" and I say, "Well, I stand on this mat and I think," and I do a little short explanation about kinetic energy first. So we have a little science lesson about molecules bumping into each other and and the energy of motion. And then I say, "While I'm thinking on this, standing on this mat, um, the molecules will go down through my body and and onto the mat. And if the story's any good, the edges will flutter." And if it's really good, it'll actually float off the ground a little bit. And you can see, well, I demonstrate, you can see all the kids leaning forward and they they know that it's not going to happen, but there's a part of them that's just willing it to happen, whereas the adults in the room are just sitting back going, she's an idiot, oh, <laughs> this is not going to happen. I'm willing it to happen, Trudy. I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you have a good childlike imagination. <laughs> well, but that's why, because they're... They're willing to believe a little bit more in the ridiculousness, so you just have a little bit more scope with your story ideas. Mm, absolutely. Have more fun. Now, I always ask this question on the podcast to all my guests. So, Michael, I'll ask you first, why do you write? Why did I write? Um, I actually had a grandfather in uh, England um, who's no longer with us, but he was a local village poet. Wow. And, um he started writing at the age of 60, so I decided there was always time for me to start for a long time. And he ended up writing, um, it was always rhyming poetry. Um, some of it was close to dog rule, but a lot of it was historic about the villages where he lived. He wrote um, a, a poem on one of the royal weddings and had a letter back from the Queen about it. Wow. And he wow. everything he'd written, he could He'd memorised. Wow. Because this is from an age in the early 1900s when you got up and you you did a recitation at the hall, the village mm -hmm. hall on Saturday. Mm -hmm. So his memory was incredible. And um, I found him brilliant when he came out here. He, he'd say, Christmas is a happy time, a merry festive season. We eat and drink and nearly bust. We hardly know the reason. <laughs> And he'd go on like that, and he had umpteen poets about village cricket. And I took him up the Barossa, and all I needed to do was sit him down, get him one tasting, and I'd introduce him. And I'd say, "Oh, Gramps, the poet." And they say, "Oh, yeah, is he?" Well, I'm the poet, Gramp. We got more free bottles of wine out of those visits than uh, you can imagine. But it was it was always there as a possibility for me to write some poems because Gramp 
wrote poems and so on. So I love that. So it is in your blood and in your genetics. I love that. So you have to write. I, I think so. I, uh, I owe a lot to him. Trudy, why do you write? Um, I always enjoyed writing when I was at school. I used to love doing creative writing. Um, and I just love playing with words. I love to rearrange them into something that has the power to move people, to evoke emotion, whether it be humour, um, empathy, sadness. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Words are powerful. I love the, the power of words and I love to make people feel emotion. I One of my first picture books or my first picture book, I've lost my kisses. People sometimes say to me, it made me cry, which makes me really happy that I made people cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's just I've always loved reading and writing has just sort of become an extension of it, I guess. Mm, absolutely. Great answers. Well, it's been an absolute joy to chat to you both. Trudy Truen, your book, Grandma's Prickly Secret, and Michael Dumbleton, your book, Mary Had a Monstersaurus, both on the wrong side of funny uh, and both will absolutely engage the kids and you'll have fun while you're reading it aloud. And that's so important too as an adult because when you're reading the same picture book to your children, let's say 490 times, you need to be <laughs> a little bit entertained yourself, right? That's right. You <laughs> do. do, yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm right I'm deep in that right now. So I have a, a deep understanding of I need to be enjoying this book that I've that I could probably memorize and recite too. So <laughs> thank you so much for your time and um it's been wonderful to chat to you about all things No, it's great to talk with you. Thanks very much, Danny. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny B Books, Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.